I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Irish Times Business Podcast in association with Irish Life. Eight of the top 10 Irish companies choose to do business with us. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, August 24th. I'm Kieran Hancock and on this week's show, we'll be looking at IBEX vision for Dublin over the next six years. Should we be reaching for the sky to solve the housing problem in our capital? And what about regional development? Later in the show, we'll have a roundup of the latest corporate news with Joe Brennan. The row between the IFA and Larry Goodman would own Burke Kennedy, while Cliff Taylor will take us through the latest employment data from the CSO. And don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. But We'll start with the future of Dublin and IBEC's submission to the City Council on its draft development plan. I'm joined in studio by Fergal O'Brien, Director of Policy with IBEC, and Cliff Taylor, Business Editor of the Irish Times. And Fergal, I'll hand over to you to encapsulate, if you like, uh, the main points of this report from an IBEC uh, point of view. Where, where, what direction do you think Dublin should be heading in the next six years? Hello, Karen. I think the crucial context for this is that we want to see the development of Dublin, of our capital city, in relation to a whole range of other issues and external challenges that we see and opportunities coming at us. Um, And our main concern probably is that from a planning perspective within Dublin City and in the Council, it's probably been seen in a very, very narrow sense. So if you look at that broader context in terms of the the key kind of external environment issues, um, we have a rapidly growing population in Ireland. Uh, It's spectacular how strongly growing that population has been even through the downturn. Ireland will almost inevitably have the strongest growing population of any European country over the next 20 to 30 years. But also we have a real problem in terms of the spatial distribution of that population. So looking at it in that kind of more holistic context, we need to start planning properly in a long-term sense for that population growth and planning our capital city. And that has to mean bringing greater density of development and of population into mm. the city and also, you, you in al- a way that we haven't been doing in recent decades. Sure, you've also argued that we have four local authorities in the Dublin area. They all kind of do their own thing. They all have their own draft development plans. You're also arguing for uh, mm. the four of them to come together and to produce one spatial plan out over that period to bring mm. a bit of coherence uh, to the development of the city. Yeah, the crux of the issue really crucially, I suppose, is, is, is two or threefold. 
we don't have that joined up thinking in terms of how we plan the local authorities within the city. That is a real challenge. We don't have a long-term vision in terms of where we want to take the city region. And crucially, we do not have the specific mechanisms then to make this a higher density city in parallel to what we see happening in other European capitals. So specifically then, when we look at mm. the council amendments to the height restrictions, they're trying to take us back to a level that is simply not fit for purpose in terms of planning for the population growth that we're going to see in Dublin City over the next this number from of decades. 28 metres down to 24 So in city areas and inner city areas, if you like, and 16 down to 13, I think, in so, the suburbs. Yeah, essentially in our suburbs, we're restricting apartment height, residential apartment height, to about four storeys. Hmm. Um, and that well, is that cannot- a bad thing? I mean, Dublin has a low-rise city landscape. I mean, it's, it's part of what makes hmm. the city, I guess. So I think the crucial thing is having limits on the height is very restrictive in terms of how we can plan the city. And what we would like to see is a more holistic approach to how we plan. I think we, we would like to see a tall building strategy, for example, that we see in other European capitals. Um, I think that would make for a much better approach to planning. Uh, we need to give discretion to the planners that they can look on a site-by-site basis what's appropriate in terms of the type of building, in terms of the height of building for particular locations and not to have a one-size-fits-all restriction on height, which is ultimately going to limit density. And I think it's very interesting, if you look at the the demographic trends of the city, what's been happening in the city centre and its suburbs over the last number of years is that most areas actually have had a shrinking population. And in the context then of that donut effect of, of Dublin, we're pushing all of the population growth out into neighbouring counties and even as far as the Midlands, even as far as right down to the middle of the country. Well, I think um, the primary figures for the census, the 2016 census, um, show that actually Dublin city area grew, the population grew by over 5%. So I mean, the, the, the no, I, know, I know that's not necessarily inner city. Mm. It includes the suburbs, obviously. Um, but but it's, very interesting, it's quite strong growth. But it's it? very interesting if you look at the number of local areas that have had a shrinking population mm. over that time. So you look at suburbs um, out of the city centre and so many of them, their population is ageing and shrinking. There are no properties available for the young people Hmm. looking to buy homes or, again, for the people who are looking to trade down. So we're not delivering a holistic kind of property solution for how we want to plan the city. Sure, sure. Cliff, housing is a big issue, uh, Mm. no doubt, on the agenda um, at the minute. And uh, it's not just IBEC calling for taller Mm. buildings in inner city Dublin, it's also the Minister for Housing, Simon Coven. He's made this uh, call as well, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, there seems to be, you know, there's a bit of right and left hand going on here, I suppose. The national policy is to get more houses built, that this is been identified as one of our one of our key strategic national priorities uh, you know even in the context of Brexit you could say if all these bankers are going to come to live in Dublin we're going to have to have somewhere for them to stay and it does seem that as Fergus said putting a height restriction on uh, you know a, a, a clear rule or I suppose or a rigid rule around height restriction you know is something that's going da- to to damage the uh, the ability to deal with this damage the ability to bring on new developments in the, in the city centre and I suppose also make it harder for developers to actually make you know press the button and say okay I can build X number of properties here I'm going to go ahead with this development instead if the restrictions are coming in uh, the sums are different now of course you know Planning is the key thing here, and uh, having these uh, having these high rises properly controlled, uh, properly scoped out, properly controlled by architects and developers, uh, you know, is, is vital if, if you know if, if we are to proceed like this. But it does seem mm-hmm. like kind of a right, bit of a right and left hand going on here. Yeah, it's not all just about height, though, is it? It's also about the quality of the apartment, yeah. no matter how many stories are in the building. And uh, Alan Kelly, in his time uh, in government, uh, Alan Kelly of the Labour Party. Um, 
push through new rules which uh, yeah. essentially allow for smaller apartments. Um, now, if people are going to have quality of living uh, in a capital city, because we've had a lot of rubbish apartments built in Dublin yeah. uh, during the boom years, so if they're going to have quality of living, do we really need to make the apartments smaller? Mm. Well, what we need is good quality housing. Um, what we need is flexibility for planners, professional planners, in any particular development to work with those developers to get the best property solution for that locality. Does IBEX support those rules that were introduced by Alan Kelly? Well, some of the rules that were introduced by uh, Alan Kelly and where councils went over and beyond those rules, some of those changes were actually rolled back on, if you remember, because what we were doing is we were putting far too much regulation and far too much additional cost into the construction industry. Now, that wasn't the main reason why we were having an undersupply of property, but it was definitely a contributory reason. And at the same time, having additional height or achieving additional height in terms of what would be allowable is not going to be a panacea in terms of in terms of housing provision, housing supply and affordability in the city. Mm. But I think we can be pretty sure by not having it and having that additional restriction, it will be damaging in terms of the viability of developments and we will see opportunities missed in terms of development that should be happening at a reasonably high density appropriate to local areas not going ahead because it simply won't be viable for the developers yeah. to do so. Now, IBEX is an employers group. I'm sure you have your finger on the pulse in terms of what the opportunities are for employment growth in Dublin over the coming years. Let's take Brexit for example. What do you think the opportunity is for uh, businesses to be relocated to Dublin uh, as a result of the UK's decision to leave the European Union? I I think it's interesting when you look at the the threats and opportunities coming out of Brexit. Um, I think for Dublin, potentially Cork, Galway, Limerick, they could see the upside in terms of opportunities. If we're going to see relocation inwards, it's going to be in services industries, and they're most likely going to be gravitating towards the major cities and to Dublin. Um, so having, again, the quality of life offering, the residential offering, the transport access, livability factors, um, as good as they need to be to give us Dublin as mm. a city with a high livability ranking, that's going to be absolutely But crucial. how many jobs are we, are we talking about, do you think? What's, what's your best guess I, on that? I think it's far too early to, to put numbers on it. We're, we're going to have to see, you know, much more kind of concrete uh, shape in terms of negotiations. and in, in, But are we in, talking in more to 5,000 level or maybe 50,000? What, what do you think? Well, I, I think from a Dublin perspective, we'd always be very realistic in terms of the absorption capacity of this city. Um, right now, we're struggling to absorb the workers that we have. And it is a real problem, which brings us back to this need for greater density within the city region. Yeah. But clearly we are looking at potential upsides in terms of thousands of jobs, yes. Cliff. Yeah, I mean, there certainly is, has been gossip about various investment banks from London going around to state agents kind of scoping out what might or might not be available here and what, you know. In terms of accommodation. In terms of accommodation for workers, yeah. For workers, yeah now I, I suspect when you go and talk to these companies, they say, oh, no, 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 no decisions have been made, nothing's been finalised. And that's probably the case, but clearly they're looking at their options. And clearly there's the potential for a significant movement of people in. But I suppose one of the issues is there's been a lot of talk about the stop in house building during the crash. Uh, and obviously that is a key issue that has to be addressed. But we also had a, a stop in infrastructure investment. So, you know, public transport. Mm, the Dart Underground project. The Dart Underground project. Gosh, we've been talk- how many years have we, talk- have we been talking about that? The new links to the airport. Um, all the public transport infrastructure, road infrastructure, all of that was pretty much brought to a halt during the during the crash because from from the political point of view, it's much easier to cut capital current investment spending, spending than to get current spending. You, you, you cut current spending, you hit someone's pocket. You cut capital spending, there is a cost, but you only notice it in three or four years' time. Mm. Now we're three or four years down the road, we're noticing it. 
we do have some money to spend. You know, we do have a bit of leeway in the budget, but we're kind of very restricted by EU rules uh, in terms of what we're going to be able to do over the next few years. And I, I think one of the key strategic issues for the government is to try and push that envelope a bit, try and find a way around those rules, try and use the resources we have to, tr- to try and address some of these key investment issues, not only in Dublin, but, you know, outside outside as well to kind yeah. of allow this allow this development to happen. Well, regional development shouldn't all be about Dublin, should it? I mean, regional development should probably mm. play a part in this. I mean, there's no reason why some of these jobs couldn't be located in, in Cork and Limerick if we think smartly about it and if we develop a plan that perhaps uh, could develop uh, the regions as as a, a viable alternative to Dublin. And in terms of livability and quality of life and so on, I mean, arguably there's, you know, better opportunities uh, in the likes of Cork, Limerick or, or Galway than in Dublin at the minute because everybody knows about the congestion on public transport and the road networks and so on that we have. And also the fact, as you mentioned, people are being pushed farther and farther out from where they work. Yeah, absolutely. Government has a crucial um, policy policy portfolio on the desk at the moment called the National Planning Framework, which is our successor to the National Spatial Strategy. Now, unfortunately, it never really worked. It never really worked, right? Because we ended up yeah. with the one for everyone, and yeah. we all had the, the bad examples of departments going to Knock Airport and all of the other things that that were proposed, and some of them happened at the time. Um, this time has to be different in terms of how we plan the future of the country. It's a really important opportunity. You know, when you look at the lessons we now surely must have learned out of some of the bad development and the bad planning and uh, during the Celtic Tiger years. Um, so we really hope that we have political focus on this to bring a level of seriousness to a new national planning framework can really help design, shape that country for 20 to 30 years and start putting those infrastructure investments into the places where it can really, really make a difference. Um, and part of that will mean investing properly in our capital and having the right type of housing density in the capital. Um, you talk about Cork and Limerick, the fact that we don't have a motorway connection between our second and third cities really beggars belief at this stage of the 21st century. Yeah. Um, so kind of Limerick seems, to me anyway, it seems like a natural uh, c- counterbalance to Dublin because you have international airports at both ends, you have good universities in both cities. Mm-hmm. You know, they've, they've got sizable ports um, at both ends. And there's already a cluster of certain businesses within, the, within that region, you know, be it agri-food or aviation leasing, or uh, there's some financial services down there, et cetera. So the med- potential med- med- Medical, for example, between yeah, pharmaceuticals pharma, and, med- yeah. and, med- and medical devices, we see a very strong cl- cluster of the, of the medical devices, in particular around Galway and the farm and in Cork. Mm. Um, if we could start connecting that western seaboard. So I think we really need to look in terms of an Atlantic corridor approach mm. rather than any two cities. I think we're going to see quite a game changer actually next year. We're going to have that motorway between Cork, Cork, between Limerick and Galway. It's going to bring travel time probably down to about an hour. But where is that going to leave the kind of Cork-Limerick relationship? Mm. And is it actually going to disconnect Cork mm. from any effort at an Atlantic corridor? Mm. I suppose one of the things, I was just going to say one of the, one of the issues is I suppose that a lot of the jobs that are going to come in post-Brexit are going to be in the services sector. And while some of those have gone to regional cities over the last few years, the vast majority probably still are still looking at Dublin. They're still looking at the, I suppose, the talent pool for in areas like financial services being concentrated in Dublin. So if there was an area where policy could make a difference, it's in, perhaps in looking at that whole issue and saying, well, look, how can we swing the balance for these companies? How can we get them to Cork or Limerick or, or Galway or whatever, uh, rather than all looking to cluster around the IFSC? Yeah, and Fergal talked about uh, we should have, hopefully we will have learned lessons from the crash and some of the mistakes mm. we made in the past. Do you think those lessons have been learned? Oh, I don't know, Kieran. I mean, if there's one uh, politically toxic issue, I suppose, is region, you know, it is regional development. 
every local TD is going to want a bit for their own constituency. We saw that with the previous attempt, as Fergal mentioned, you know, negotiation about what department went to what part of the country and the more powerful the minister or the TD was from that part of the country, the better thing, toy they, you know, they got in the plan that was unveiled. We simply have to find a way of, of pulling it back a little bit from the, from the political process and even from the political cycle because you're talking about something here that's going to take, I don't know what, for 10, 15 years. Uh, the longest a government can last is five years. Uh, so we need to find some way to develop that longer term vision, I suppose you could say, yeah. which is something that, that our political system hasn't been sure. particularly good at in the and past. And actually, on that point, Fergal, this draft development plan, it's a six-year uh, plan mm-hmm. and just for Dublin City Council. Um, but really, we should be thinking longer term than that, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we have a, a 10, 12, 15-year plan put in place? Absolutely, we should. And you Especially know, I think, I think if we need big infrastructure projects, yeah. which are going to take a long time to deliver. Yeah, and the development of the city shouldn't be left, I think, to the vagaries of any kind of political composition of a council over 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 an individual period. The other key issue here, actually, is we're going ahead with this development plan at a time when we don't have the national planning framework on the table. Because if that was there, actually, it might give more guidance about the required level of density that we'd be looking mm. at for the capital city and how we're going to balance that with development across the regions. So we need to get all of these plans lined up and much more coherent so that we're actually getting a national, as I said at the outset, much more holistic approach to how we plan the country, including our capital and our regions, and that it's all actually knitting together. Because we're actually, there's one train leaving the station here um, in the absence of having an overall framework, and it's quite unhelpful, actually. Yeah, and I noticed from your uh, document as well that you're talking about an orbital uh, bypass around the M50, another M50, uh, effectively, and also the completion of the Eastern Bypass, which has been on the books for many, many years and is hugely controversial given the area that it goes through in Dublin. Um, but it strikes me that the focus has moved away from road projects and, and more towards uh, public transport. So, I mean, what are the chances of ever delivering those projects? I think at some stage, um, national planners and Dublin planners will have to revisit our road infrastructure. We're going to see a, a level of population growth. And despite all the best efforts to take people out of cars and public transport and everything else that we can do and, and can be achieved, we're still going to have a significant, significant increase uh, in, in terms of cars. And the demographics are just going to drive that. And ultimately, we're going to have to grasp a nettle in terms of improved road infrastructure because we've we've ended up with an orbital road that clearly isn't an orbital road because it's full of full of development uh, entering and exiting it um, and ultimately Dublin will probably need some form of, of genuine orbital road with, without that kind of bad planning development uh, interfering with traffic flow. Yeah and Cliff we talked about the opportunities that might present themselves from Brexit but it's not just Dublin uh, pitching for this mm. you know for these potential jobs uh, we're up against other cities as well yeah. uh, Paris, Luxembourg, Amsterdam uh, etc maybe yeah. Frankfurt. Absolutely I mean I guess part of the story of economic development uh, across Europe across the world in the last uh, 10 or 15 years has been the competition between cities we tend to look at it a competition between nations but competition between cities has arguably become uh, become even more important and you're right it's Dublin versus uh, Amsterdam Amsterdam versus Frankfurt uh, versus four or five other other capitals, and uh, you know they'll all be putting themselves out, putting themselves out there as good places to live, good places to work, good infrastructure. Uh, there are pluses and minuses from the Irish point of view. Uh, you know we have a we have a strong case to make in, in a lot of ways, uh, but you know bankers are going to look here and they say, well, if we're going to employ four or five hundred people here, where are they going to live? How are they going to get to work? Uh, if we want to expand another four or five and three or four years time, how is that? How is that going to work? And we have a difficulty now, you know, in the short term, in answering some of those questions. Yeah, and Fergal, final word 
to you. And do you think, are you confident um, that Dublin City Council will come up with a plan that's that'll be delivered and coherent? Well, interestingly, we see an awful lot of momentum now behind re-looking re- re- at some of the, the latest proposals that are there in terms of bringing more height. Uh, I think public opinion actually does ultimately favour a higher density city development. Uh, a number of politicians have come out urging the council as well. So we would hope that they will take that much broader view in terms of long-term development of the city and bring a sensible plan that will help us to get more affordable and higher density accommodation into the city for people who so desperately need it. Yeah. Okay, Cliff Taylor and Fergal O'Brien, thank you for joining us. We'll take a short break now and return with a roundup of the main stories of the week. Back in a few moments. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, September 2014. Now, welcome back. Uh, Cliff Taylor has stayed with us while I'm joined by our markets correspondent, Joe Brennan, and Irish Times business reporter, Owen Burke-Kennedy. And they're here to round up the main stories of the week thus far. Uh, Cliff, we might start with you. We had the National Household Survey data from the CSO on Tuesday, which showed that more than two people are work uh, in the country for the first time since 2009. Hip hip hooray! Yeah, back back up over two million for total employment, which is which is a bit of a marker. And I, I guess we would have thought in the at the at the foot of the crash that we'd be a long time get back back to this level. But employment growth has been really strong over the last couple of years. I suppose the key thing to note from the figures is that the the pace of employment growth actually picked up in the second quarter of the year or the first quarter. Uh, with 20,000 jobs in the second quarter versus 16,000 uh, quarterly increase in the first quarter. You might have thought, I suppose, from some of the other indicators, particularly surrounding industry, there might have been a bit of, you know, something of a slowdown or at least a, a, a same as position in the second quarter versus the first. So so, so I think that's encouraging, encouraging in terms of the rate of growth in the economy. The big uncertainty, of course, is where we're going to be set for the rest of the year with Brexit um, with Brexit having happened what impact is that going to have on confidence what impact is it going to have on uh, on hiring uh, the, the very end of this sample I think did cross over the post-Brexit period but really you know it'll be the next set of figures before we see what the impact of that is yeah. the hope I guess is that you know companies will, will maybe after a bit of a pause for thought and a bit of reflection say look this thing is going to be a good few years playing itself out and, and, and continue continue much as they were I suppose realistically there are going to be some sectors going to be hit particularly companies that are that are vulnerable to sterling If we drill down into the numbers a little bit I mean the annual change is up uh, 56,200 so there's over a thousand jobs a week yeah. being created and I suppose the encouraging thing is that uh, almost 45,000 of those were full-time positions and the rest of them part-time so that's a real positive isn't it? It is yeah I, I suppose in the initial period uh, after the economic crash what we saw when total employment did start to go up was that a large percentage of the jobs were part-time jobs and uh, there was the hope that that would be followed by full-time jobs and that companies were just being cautious 
Uh, and I suppose there was some uh, gainsaying at the time that, uh, you know, employment would never pick back up again. But there has been a really strong growth in total employment the last few years. It's been widespread across pretty much uh, pretty much every economic sector, with, with the exception of a couple. Um, led, I suppose, t- to some extent by a recovery in the construction sector. You might expect that to continue for the next while, but obviously it's coming back from a hugely low base, massive job losses in that area during during the bust. Mm. Uh, so a real bounce back there. And uh, interesting as well that females accounted for a higher number than males in terms of new jobs created. Around 30,000 uh, females versus, you know, a little over 26,000 for men. Yeah, I suppose it's perhaps a sign of a tightening labour market. Um you know, perhaps more females, mm. to, you know, coming back to work who may have previously left the workforce to have families or whatever, and that the labour market is strong enough to attract them back into back into employment now, probably also reflects the overall s- structure of the, Ir- of, the, of the Irish population. You know, particularly interesting given that uh, there was such a big increase in the construction sector, which would to some extent be, uh, be you know, be dominated by male employment, uh, that, that, that elsewhere the female employment growth was so strong. Mm. Uh, Omar Kennedy, you, you actually wrote about these numbers uh, during the week and uh, obviously employment is up, but un- unemployment uh, is down, uh, which you would expect, uh, down 23,400 uh, year on year and the unemployment rate uh, continues to fall. We're down at, what, 8.4% now from 15.1, I think, back in 2011? Yeah, it does continue to fall, albeit uh, they had to make a revision to uh, the latest sets of figures. So we've actually gone back up to 8.3%, but that was largely because the labour force has got bigger and the 7.8 was based on the kind of projected live register numbers. So um, we're, we're down to 8.3, but as Cliff mentioned, uh, employment growth accelerated in the third quarter. So you can't really read any negatives into that. It was just a recalibration of the data we have available. But um, I suppose, yeah, it, it, it comes at a time when we were listening to a lot of dire warnings about Brexit. Uh, the GDP figures um, caused a lot of controversy, but you know, underneath all this, we can see that the uh, Irish economy is still barreling away, still growing very well. We should caveat all that by saying it's for the six months of the year, and the next six months will presumably give us yeah. some sort of feedback on the fallout from Brexit. Because the Brexit vote was June twenty fourth, mm-hmm. right at the end of uh, right at the end of the second quarter. Uh, Cliff, how important are these figures in terms of uh, the government's framing of the budget? I mean, they're, they're working on that at the minute. Uh, it's coming in mid October, so how important are these numbers? Yeah, they are important in that they're one of the most uh, up to date economic indicators that the government has. So I suppose. The government would be looking at these figures and also looking at the monthly tax figures and you'd expect that if employment is continuing to go up then companies are making money, corporation tax will go up, income tax will go up. Uh, if people, more people are getting jobs then VAT is going to go up. So you know, these are a crucial underpinning of the budget sums and I suppose what will be really interesting over the next month or so is whether there is any kind of a little sign of, of an impact from Brexit and whether the government has to revise the sums in any way. They have promised to... Uh, or said that they their intention was to increase uh, spending and cut taxes by around one billion in the budget. Mm. Um, it isn't an awful lot, but uh, they'll certainly be trying to at least stick to that figure and may, may, maybe even increase it a little bit. Uh, I would have thought, and I would think that unless the figures really, you know, are really poor over the next month or so, they probably should uh, should be able to justify that. I think they would have left enough room for manoeuvre, wriggle room in the figures, as they always do. Yeah, okay. Joe, it's been a busy few days on the corporate front uh, with results from a number of Irish PLCs. Cavan-based building materials group Kingspan kicked it all off. Uh, what did the company have to say? Yeah, I suppose with, with Kingspan, it's a case of a Brexit. What Brexit? Um, the, the company itself... Um, 
uh, a, a number of months ago, uh, Gene Murta, the CEO of, of the, the company, said he wasn't particularly concerned about... Gene Murta Jr., I think, are we right? Junior, yes. Uh, said he wasn't particularly concerned about Brexit uh, and that the pipeline in the UK was was pretty strong. Uh, the market didn't listen to that when, when the results of Brexit came out and the, and the stock was absolutely walloped. It was one of the worst performers uh, on the Irish market after the, 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 the Brexit referendum. It fell as much as 27%. In fairness, the results we're looking at um, earlier this week kind of uh, speak to what he was saying a number of months ago. Um, uh, best first half they've ever had. Uh, trading um, uh, income up 50% to 169.3 billion, comfortably beating um, analyst expectations as well. Um, he also said that you know what it was seen as a foregone conclusion that uh, Brexit would be a disaster for 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 for, for the company and, and for the market in general. Um, but he says a fear is uh, um, that the UK business has been hit. Uh, certainly hasn't materialised just yet. Um, and interestingly enough, he said that new orders in the UK and the UK accounts for about a quarter mm. of the business. Um, he said that new orders were up seven percent uh, since the end of June. Um, Paddy Power out the out this morning. Uh, the interesting thing about Paddy Power is the fir- this is the first set of results we've had since the the company was formed. Paddy Power Betfair was formed from the merger of both companies uh, uh, in February of this year. Um, the big thing coming out of that is that it posted a, a forty seven point five million sterling loss, and that was largely due to the, the cost of integration of the company as well. This is a big beast now in the bookmaking uh, sector in Ireland and the UK, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge company at this stage, um, and uh, the the cost. If you just even look at the cost of, it, of the merger itself, you're talking about 195 million in costs in in the, the first half of this year, uh, costing 50 million to for integration itself, and there's an 80 million uh, cost in relation to uh, accountancy adjustments after the the deal went through. Um, they're talking. I suppose analysts are talking um, at the moment about the 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 the, the, the synergies that the company uh, reckons it'll create um, from from the deal, um, which is slightly better than what they had forecast um, at the outset. They expect the synergies to be in the region of about sixty five million next year, um, yeah. which will be. 50 million ahead of, of, of what they expected and a year ahead of schedule as well. And I thought one of the interesting uh, pieces of news to emerge from the results from Paddy Power this morning was the fact that Stuart Kenny, who was a founder of Paddy Power and one of the driving forces behind that company for many years, he's stepping down from the board of the merged entity. Yeah, I mean, he was one of the three co-founders back in 1988 and he was CEO between then and 2002. He stepped down from that position but remained on the board ever since then and was seen as very much a key player, even as a non-executive director, in, in, in the shaping of, 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 of Paddy Power. Um, I suppose we've seen a number of ex-Paddy Power um, people leave in, in recent times, not least um, Andy McHugh, the former CEO. We've also seen a number of upper middle management Paddy Power executives also uh, leave in mm. recent times as well. So change times out in Power Tower. Now, Hustle World, uh, another Irish company uh, with results out this week. Tell us about them. Yeah, Hustle World, um, it IPO'd late last year and it raised 180 million uh, euros at the time. Um, it had a bit of a disaster in May when it came out with uh, a set of figures uh, that was much l- worse than what the market had been expecting. I think they'd expected a bit of an upturn in terms of bookings heading into the euros. Uh, that hadn't materialised and you also had a number of um, of uh, terrorist attacks affecting the business as well. So the stock itself back in May lost as much as a third of its value at the time. Um, results are being 
received fairly well by the market uh, today. Um, revenue, uh, even though revenue fell about nine percent to uh, forty point two million, uh, the company said uh, company said it's uh, it expects to meet analyst expectations for the full year. Though it highlighted the the potential impact of uh, of currency fluctuations as a result of Brexit yeah. and also uh, terrorism related okay. uh, issues. And, and finally, on the PLC front, uh, CRH and Independent News and Media, two of the big name players on the Irish uh, stock market, they're coming out with results later this week. What, what should we be expecting? What should we be looking for? Yeah, CRH um, came out a few weeks ago um, ahead of schedule um, with a, a forecast that its um, earnings for the first half of this year would be a good bit ahead of expectations. I think the market took that a bit of a surprise by that. If you look at the, the company itself, it's actually up 7%. The stock is up 7% since Brexit. Um, they, they said a number of weeks ago that uh, operating earnings are what they call EBIT. DAO would be 10% ahead of what the market um, was expecting and what they had guided themselves. So it's they, all about the US for CRH at the moment. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, uh, as of April, the, the most recent kind of trading, big trading statement from them, they were saying that the US uh, was going, uh, was well ahead uh, of last year. But uh, Europe was had signs of stabilisation, was slightly up. So I suppose the key for for, for CRH is, is some sort of guidance as to how the UK is, uh, sorry, how Europe is, 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 is going at the moment. Okay. And big I, thing about uh, CRH is that there's uh, it's it's rocketed up in the last uh, week or so amid speculation that it rejoined the Eurostox 50 index. Okay, and I and M. INM um, out later on this week. Um, stock is down since Brexit. Um, and the, we also had the ABC print circulation figures out last week, which showed that uh, print circulation was down uh, 2.5% for the Irish Independent for the first half of this year. Um, analysts are expecting um, slight growth in revenue with digital ad growth um, more than offsetting uh, declines elsewhere. The big thing around INM is that it's sitting on a massive, well, relatively massive uh, cash pile. Um, about £60 million pounds and analyst expectation is that that'll rise to about £80 million by the end of this year. And if you look at it compared to the, the stock price, the cash they have in the balance sheet is equivalent to about 43% of the of the valuation of the company. Yeah, and now with the company, well, the company is is targeting uh, acquisitions uh, and they set up an, an M&A um, function within the company as well. And they have been buying some bits and pieces uh, such as um, Ulster Grocer, Ulster Business and, and Northern woman from uh, earlier this year. It's all small beer. And I suppose there is you know, there is a view out there that maybe they should spend the cash in, in buying back some of the shares. Mm-hmm. I wonder, will Dennis O'Brien be tempted to give himself a dividend <laughs> given how much he's spending? Anyway, we, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, Cliff, sticking with uh, the corporate side of things, there's been a, an update on the tax case involving Apple and Ireland. Uh, brings up to date on that. Yeah, this I suppose to sketch in a bit of the background. The European Commission found a couple of years ago that uh, the Irish tax deal with Apple had been a controversy of state aid rules going back to the 1980s when Apple first established here. And we've been waiting for a final verdict on that from the EU Commission and waiting to hear whether they feel that the Irish government should go to knock on the door of Apple and say, by the way, you owe us whatever yeah. in back well, taxes. The bill could be as high as nineteen billion. Yeah, I think uh, that was very much the the, the upper the upper reaches and, and possibly uh, put out in the ether with some help from Apple to I suppose frighten the horses to some extent. I think most people don't expect that it will be uh, quite that high, but certainly you know if it were to run at the hundreds of billions or the hundreds of millions or the early billions, that would still be you know that would still be a huge amount. What happened today was uh, there's been I suppose a bit of fire over the last few months from Washington basically trying to get Europe to back off here 
and we've seen that uh, take 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 uh, a further step forward today with the U.S. Treasury Department, the U.S. Department of Finance, effectively publishing a white paper, basically laying out its case why it feels uh, the European Commission has gone beyond its reasonable remit here, mm-hmm. in terms of trying to turn itself into what the U.S. called a super supranational tax authority. Uh, it said U.S. companies had no warning that this is going to happen. It said it was particularly. Uh, in in that sense, uh, unreasonable that uh, back tax would be looked for from companies. So in other words, the commission takes up a new policy in 2012 or 2013 and goes to US companies and looks for back tax going back to 1990 or or 2000. They're saying, look, that's completely unreasonable. And finally, um, saying, look, the risk here is this is going to undermine the whole nexus of international tax treaties, the whole multinational Mm -hmm. basis on which which tax is run. No doubt, I I think that this is a very serious shot across the bows of the the European Commission ahead of making this call on Apple. I mean, the Americans wouldn't take any lectures from anyone else uh, about how they run their tax affairs. And they have no problem uh, in really coming down heavy on corporates. Yeah, I mean, it's rich for two reasons. I mean, that that is the first one, as you say yourself. And and, and there's also the fundamental factor that these whole uh, legal, well, well, are they legal? The the EU Commission's claim there aren't, but but, but, what were thought to be legal tax avoidance mechanisms are all based inherently in US tax law. Okay, they're using Irish tax law and Netherlands tax law, Luxembourg tax law along the way. But the basic thing that allows this to happen is a provision in US tax law that if a big US multinational earns money outside the United States and it keeps that money outside the United States, then it doesn't pay US corporate tax on that unless the money is returned to America. So, you know, that rule could be changed, uh, could be changed overnight. Uh, there is some suggestion in the US presidential campaign that should happen, but that, that could be changed. That would change this whole game. So so it is a bit rich, I suppose, that the US is, uh, the US Treasury are yeah. okay. taking and not, not outlying that side of the case. Yeah, all right, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, Owen, uh, we all love a good corporate row, and we, we have that in spades at the minute between the IFA and a businessman, Larry Goodman. Uh, he owns ABP uh, Food Group, uh, the state's largest beef processor, and has become embroiled in a row with the Irish Farmers Association over a move to halt the automatic deduction of levies uh, from farmers. Uh, the IFA feels that Goodman's move to cease collecting the European Involvement Fund levies from suppliers is designed to undermine it. Tell us the background um, to this. Why, why, why does Larry Goodman uh, collect these levies in the first place and uh, why is he now withholding them? Yeah, it's a pretty odd one actually because the Irish Farmers Association rely on the processing industry, on marts, on merchants to collect uh, a levy on its behalf and that stems back from the 1970s where it funded the IFA's uh, kind of lobbying in Brussels and still does to this day. Anyway, as you said, the EIF is is a pretty small tariff. It's, it equates to about um, you know one euro fifty per thousand uh, pounds of, or thousand euros, I should say, of sales. But it's worth uh, about a third of the IFA's annual budget, about four point seven uh, million. Um, anyway, it's it, the, the controversial thing about it is it's actually automatically collected from farmers without uh, uh, seeking their consent. Now they can opt out, but if there's no preference, it's just automatically deducted. Now, last week, Larry Goodman's ABP group uh, announced that it was going to change this to uh, an opt-in basis, meaning farmers would actually have to contact a firm to say if they wanted to pay it. Now, the IFA saw red. They saw this as a deliberate attack on their funding arrangements, and they thought it was, you know... And what happens if they don't opt in? If they don't opt in, uh, 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 it's, it's it's not collected at all. 
which is the opposite of the case of which uh, if they signal no, no way uh, in, in, in the past, it was just collected. So, so now the farmer keeps the money and it doesn't go to the IFA? Yeah, if they, if they do nothing. Now they're going to, if they want to pay, they're going to have to signal to um, APP. But, but I, I should uh, preface that by saying that in retaliation, uh, the IFA has cancelled APP's authorization to collect this on its half. So at the moment, the uh, levies coming from APP to the IFA don't exist at the moment. Right, so it's a bit of a Mexican standoff. Yeah, it is uh, a bit. Yeah, it's a bit sort of. I suppose the IFA sort of realised um, their girlfriend was breaking her off with them when they got there first. Right. But okay. So how do we? How do? Uh, uh, how does this impasse get broken, or does it? I mean, maybe some other arrangement gets put in place by the IFA. Well, the IFA hasn't actually kind of signalled how it's going to actually collect this money, which is worth uh, you know about two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand a year to it. It's no small chunk of change mm. for an organisation that has a kind of annual budget of thirteen million. Um, and of course, I should say that the IFA has um, claimed that ABP is acting in retaliation to competition concerns. It, the IFA has raised about ABP's planned takeover of uh, 50% of Slaney yeah, Foods. The IFA has concerns about that, doesn't it? Yeah, and of course, the company has denied this. So mm. uh, there's two kind of narratives, competing narratives. Now, um, Obviously, it's not clear where it's going to go from here, but the big fear for the IFA would be if other processors followed suit uh, and started making the levy a kind of opt-in because it remains to be seen if farmers would actually kind of signal to the various processing companies that they actually want to pay this levy. So the IFA has seen it as a, as a deliberate kind of kick by uh, Larry Goodman. Um, of course, there's another kind of school of thought that actually says that, you know, uh, Goodman's one of the biggest processes in Europe. The IFA is is not a massive concern of his and there's been rumblings about the levy for a number of months, uh, ratcheted up after the IFA's big high profile pay debacle last year. And a lot of farmers have been ringing up, getting it uh, cancelled. A lot of farmers have been complaining about it and it's just become a headache for the processors and he decided to change it. Yeah, That's right. the kind of the company's uh, narrative on it. Right. I should say that we uh, invited the IFA and Larry Goodman's uh, company to send representatives uh, to join us here today for the discussion, but uh, they both declined. Uh, so, Owen, how do you see this playing out uh, and what kind of timescale are we talking about? Well, the IFA has sort of claimed that there's no move from anywhere else in the industry. Um, so they kind of claim that... Uh, you know their their funding arrangements are reasonably safe, albeit they've lost uh, uh, you know two hundred three hundred grand of it. An interesting kind of side issue is that if the competition authority approves um, ABP's takeover of Slaney Foods, Slaney Food is another uh, big pair of uh, levies, and it remains to be seen if they'll continue paying the levy on an uh, opt out basis. So that's another headache for the IFA coming down the tracks. Otherwise, it's unclear where it's going to go. Okay, we'll see how that plays out. That's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Fergal O'Brien, Cliff Taylor, Joe Brennan and Owen Burke-Kennedy for the contributions. Declan Collin produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today, email at irishtimes.com. You can also follow the Irish Times Business Feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.